If you would open your Bibles to the book of Esther, be continuing on in this series, uh, picking up in chapter 3. But before we turn to God's Word, let us ask once again for His help in this morning. Father, we thank You that Your Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we thank You that it is through the power of Your Spirit that You apply Your Word to our hearts and to our lives. And so we once again ask this morning that You would by your word and your spirit, help us to know you, to know our Savior, to know our Father who loves us and cares for us. Would you let us grasp these truths anew again today, we pray. All of this in the name of our Lord. Amen. Amen. Be reading in Esther chapter 3, and we will be reading... The whole chapter. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But... Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan. In the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people, scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. 
Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of our Lord. So we see here that the situation in Persia for Mordecai and for Esther has gone out of the frying pan and into the fire. Yes, thus far in the story, there's been great pain, great sorrow that Esther and Mordecai have experienced. But now we come to the main conflict in the book of Esther. It is the the rising action that will soon climax with the threat of annihilation to all of the Jews in the kingdom. And so it's a conflict that becomes centered upon one question. Even in exile, after all of Israel's unfaithfulness, will God keep his promises to his people? Are they still his covenant community, his treasured possession? Will he still protect them, or is God finally and fully going to give Israel up to their enemies because of all of their unfaithfulness? That will be the pressing question for the rest of this book. What will God do with his people? But before we answer that question, chapter 3 shows us how it is we got here in the first place. And it begins with the rise of Haman the Agagite. No, that's not Agate the mineral. It is Agagite as in a descendant of King Agag, who was king of the Amalekites. Those are probably names that maybe sound a little more familiar. The Amalekites were a nomadic people living in the land of Canaan that was there at the time when Israel came out of Egypt in the Exodus and began to enter the Promised Land. And they have the notorious reputation of being the first people to attack Israel after the Exodus and after they entered into 
the promised land, as they're wandering through the wilderness, coming up and attacking the stragglers in the long line of Israelites journeying through the desert. Because of their treachery and their attack on God's people, God makes a special promise that he will entirely wipe the memory of the Amalekites from the face of the earth. So that God makes that promise in Deuteronomy 25. He says, I will wipe their memory for their treachery. And so as Israel begins to conquer the land, begins to settle in Israel, we come to King Saul, the first king of Israel. We read about him in 1 Samuel chapter 15, that after he becomes king, God tells him, you're going to go to war against the Amalekites, and you're going to devote everything that they have to destruction. It is all going to be destroyed. Every Amalekite citizen, every animal that they own, all of their goods, all of their wealth, all of their possessions, all of it is to be burned to the ground for their sin against my people. And what does Saul do? When he goes to war against the Amalekites, God gives him victory. But we read that Saul spares the life of King Agag. And he keeps the best of the flocks, all of the sheep, all of the, the herds of cattle for himself. And when he's confronted, Saul says, Oh, well, I was going to sacrifice this to the Lord, but undoubtedly was going to keep all of these things and maybe even ransom off the king's life for a nice bounty or nice reward. So we see that Saul is unfaithful. And especially unfaithful in leaving King Agag alive. Which reminds us that sin has consequences. See, King Agag's life being spared meant that he was able to produce descendants. And his line continued, and we read in Esther, continued down to Haman the Agagite, descendant of King Agag. So Saul's disobedience in sparing the life of King Agag, now we see comes to fruition and has great consequences for God's people. So sometimes sin has consequences so great it actually extends beyond our own lives and into the lives of others and actually has a generational effect. Sin affects those that come after us. Now, in God's mercy, not every sin has that generational effect extending down to the third and fourth generation. But again, we see here the sin of Saul coming back around and threatening God's people. We see the sin of these Jewish ancestors that even led them to be in exile in the first place. Esther and Mordecai hadn't disobeyed God's commands and offered sacrifices to idols and disregarded the word of the Lord, resulting in exile. They're a product of the generations that came before them. That's why they're in Persia. But we see that sin oftentimes has consequences. So we must not fall into the trap of thinking 
that persistent, unrepentant sin won't actually have an effect on our lives, won't have an effect on those around us. Well, sin most certainly does have lasting impact and lasting effects. And King Saul undoubtedly thought that you know, he, he was mostly obeying God. He killed most of the Amalekites, destroyed most of the flocks and the herds, just kept a little bit for himself. He, he thought he was doing a good job. What harm could come from keeping the king alive and, and taking some of the animals? And he was going to offer them as a sacrifice. So what was wrong with that? But yet, wonder if King Saul could have foreseen what his disobedience would cost him. Ultimately, that's what costs him the throne. The, the kingdom is, is torn from Saul because of this disobedience. If he could have seen the threat that would have resulted for all of God's people generations down the line. I wonder if he had the foresight to see those things, if he would have thought twice about sparing the king and disobeying the word of the Lord. But that's the enticement of sin, isn't it? Sin never tells you to think two, three steps down the road. It always promises us instant gratification in the here and now and says don't think about what comes next. Sin tells us, look at that website, share that gossip, pocket that money, tell that person off, go to that party. It says you, you do those things, your life is going to be so much better. You're going to feel happier if you do these things. But sin never tells us to consider the consequences. Think what effect this is going to have on our relationship with God. How this is going to impact those around us. But sin can never deliver on its promises for fulfillment. Sin always takes and leaves us empty. No matter how enticing it may seem at the time, it will always leave us in ruin. So we must remember sin has consequences, and they are often great. But now getting back to the narrative, we also see that the author wants us to show us some of the irony here of Haman being the one who is now promoted. Remember, in chapter 2, Mordecai has just saved the life of the king. He's uncovered a plot to assassinate him, and, and he saved the king's life. And what comes immediately next in the text? Well, it's chapter 3. There's a man who's promoted. Guess who it is? It's not Mordecai. It's Haman. But this promotion is another reminder to the reader that God is at work behind the scenes even when all evidence would point to the contrary. See, we aren't told of any achievements of Haman's, no grand exploits, 
No characteristics that made him worthy of being promoted. We're simply told that Mordecai was overlooked and that Haman, a descendant of one of Israel's enemies, has been promoted to the chief seat in the king's council. He's been made prime minister of all of Persia. And I've said it before in this series, and I'll continue to repeat this refrain, but we cannot let our outward circumstances be the means by which we determine God's faithfulness to us. Because our human reasoning would tell us that if God was in control, Mordecai should have been the one who was promoted. But we must remember that God's ways are higher than our ways. His plans are greater than our plans. He sees the full picture. We, we just see a narrow slice of what he is doing. And God's plan here was for Haman to be appointed as the king's chief official. And his plan was for King Ahasuerus to command all others to bow down and to pay homage to Haman. That, that was not outside of God's control. God planned that. He determined that. He ordered that. But in that plan, as the king commands everyone to bow down and pay homage to Haman, Mordecai resists. He doesn't bow down, pay homage. Doesn't honor him. Why? I think his refusal is not, as some would suggest, because Mordecai only wants to worship God and to bow down to Haman would be idolatry. No, bowing before superiors, that was a normal custom in the ancient Near East. Nowhere else do we see any instance of Mordecai refusing to bow to the king or bow to other officials. Even later on in Esther chapter 8, we see that Esther herself is going to bow down at the king's feet and plead for his salvation. So, so it's not that he is reserving worship for the one true God. So again, we, we have to ask, why then does Mordecai refuse to bow? Why does he refuse to pay homage? Again, we have to ask, what has the author told us? Well, he, he simply told us that Haman was an Agagite. He was an enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai is a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the same tribe that King Saul descended from. So Mordecai and Haman are mortal enemies, part of a family feud that has extended for generations, ancestors who have literally been at war with each other. And so for that reason, Mordecai will not bow down. He will not pay his respects because Haman is not worthy of being shown honor. I want to pause a moment and clarify that it's not simply because Haman was a Gentile uh, that it was right for Mordecai to stay standing in his presence and not honor him. 
Like none of the other officials in the king's court were Jews, at least none that we know about. The king wasn't a Jew. It was Haman's hatred of the Jews. It was his desire to eradicate them that prompted Mordecai's protest. But it's easy for Christians to believe the lie that we think we, we get a pass on showing respect and honor to our leaders simply because they're not on our side. Oh, that they're not with us, then we can talk about them however we want. And if somebody has the wrong letter next to their name, that we can then mock them, deride them, bear false witness about them, that unless they belong to our tribe, they're not worthy of any of our honor or respect. But the Bible is clear that we are to give honor to those in authority over us. I think even as Americans, with the freedom of speech, to voice our displeasure with our leaders, we as Christians do not have a license to behave like the world and use our speech to dishonor. We have a higher calling than that. So if senators start erecting gallows to hang Christians on, then we can talk about how we can deal with that. But until then, we as Christians are called to have our speech be gracious, even though it can still be true. We don't use our words to belittle and to mock. We show honor where it is due. But the way that Haman responds to Mordecai, again, shows why he is not worthy of being shown that honor. Think there's another official in the king's court who's not bowing down to Haman. Okay? It's not great. It's disrespectful. But what happens? Haman's pride overwhelms him and when Mordecai doesn't bow down, he's filled with fear. It's not just insulted, he is livid. And it wouldn't be enough just to punish Mordecai. You throw him in jail, give him a fine. No, that, that's not enough. It's not even enough to kill Mordecai. You think, that'll teach him. No, Haman is so arrogant and so proud and so filled with anger that he wants to destroy every last Jew of which Mordecai belongs to that people. That, we see, is the extent of the wickedness of Haman. One man's offense towards him, and he wants to eradicate an entire ethnic group. So Haman sets out devising a plan. I've got to show them. The first thing he does is begin casting lots, rolling of the dice. And it's ironic that he is consulting his pagan gods with the casting of lots to determine when he should wipe out the people of the one true God. So in the first month of the year, Haman starts rolling the dice to determine what's the day 
on which I should carry out this plot. He finds out the days. Thirteenth day. Okay, well now what, what's the month? Begins rolling the dice again. Determines it's the twelfth month. And so we see there's going to then be eleven months from the time Haman decides to carry out this plot to when it will be executed. Eleven months for those in the kingdom to make preparations for their attack. And eleven months for God's people to wait upon the Lord for his deliverance. To go before him and ask for his salvation once again. And to see how he will respond. So God's people were rightly afraid. They were rightly worried. Some, someone with literally the power of the king behind him, the, the most powerful nation in the world, wants them dead and annihilated. So they were rightly afraid. But they shouldn't have needed 11 months to find out whether or not God was going to protect them. For again, we see, what is the day on which Haman sends out this decree. We read that it is on the 13th day of the first month. On the very next day, all of the Jews would have been going out to their fields and selecting their Passover lamb. Selecting the animal that they were going to sacrifice and spread upon their doorpost, signaling God's deliverance of them. The great feast reminding them that God had once spared the entire nation from destruction at the hands of the Egyptians. The feast reminding them that God hears their calls for deliverance. The feast celebrating the event that led to God making his covenant with them as a nation the very next day. Haman was spending his days casting lots to see when he should pour out his wrath. And all the while, God was arranging the timing precisely so that he could remind his people that he is in complete control. See, the Jews might not have experienced relief from the threat of Haman. But they had signs from God reminding them that they could trust in him. So Haman begins to plan and scheme. And after determining when he would execute this plot, Haman now begins the work of enticing the king into this unjust massacre. So we see the injustice of the empire at work. And once again, King Ahasuerus is led astray through the faulty counsel of his advisors. In this book, he is now a perfect three for three on taking bad advice from those that he has surrounded himself with. First, in the banishing of Queen Vashti, after she refused to come and be paraded around, like a trophy. So all, all of the king's officials were afraid how their wives were going to respond when they hear about this and said, oh, you need to get rid of her. And so the king does. 
Second, he, he listens to their advice and kidnaps every young, beautiful woman for his harem so he can find one of them to be made queen. And now, there's a certain people. They are different from us. They've got different laws. So they need to be exterminated. The king says, okay, sounds good to me. And then once again, takes terrible advice from his counselors, which again ought to be a reminder to us that we be mindful about the voices that we surround ourselves with. Who is it that you listen to the most? That has your ear? I think, do we too have friends or influencers or, or news outlets that, that are constantly leading us astray, giving us unsound and unwise advice? Like no one is immune from being deceived by plausible-sounding arguments. So we too must choose carefully who it is we listen to, lest we be drawn away from the Lord into disobedience and into foolishness. And look at how sly Haman is in his manipulation of the king into getting him to do his bidding. Again, he's telling half-truths. Oh, king, there's a certain people. It doesn't matter who they are. Their, their laws are different from everyone else's. That's true. So they don't keep the king's law. Well, that, that's, that's half-truth. It's just Mordecai, one man, who's not obeying one aspect of the king's commands. But Mordecai has been more than faithful to the king. So Haman twists the truth. He says, oh, king, it would be in your interest to eliminate these people. Again, it's not in the king's interest. It's in Haman's interest. So Haman twists the truth, but if that doesn't work, then just says, oh, maybe I'll offer a bribe. He says, king, if you carry this out, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the treasury. So the king's pride doesn't get him to punish these lawbreakers, and surely his greed will. This is no small sum. This is tons and tons of silver. It is about two-thirds of the yearly taxes that the king would have normally collected in the kingdom. So Haman says, King, if you let me carry this out, I'll pay that into the treasury. Undoubtedly, Haman's going to raise those 10,000 talents of silver by plundering all the Jews that get killed. He says, Persians, you kill some Jews, keep their goods, but maybe send some back to the king as tribute. But it turns out that it was the king's pride that was all that was needed for him to go along with this plot. Tells Haman, keep the money, and gives him his signet ring, which basically carries the authority of the king. So the king wants to issue an edict throughout the land, writes it down on a piece of parchment, it's rolled up, uh, a dab of, of wax and it is melted onto that scroll and the king's ring with his signet, his sign, would be pressed down into that wax, creating a seal so that 
Whoever throughout the kingdom opens that and reads it knows that this came from the very hand of the king himself. And so in a sense, Ahasuerus is handing the Jews over to Haman to do with as ever, however he wishes. The king's abdicating any responsibility in the matter. And he's letting an entire people group be wiped out because they maybe have a different set of laws and customs. And so we read in verse 13 that letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And then to highlight the depravity of this plan, after that decree is sent out, Haman and Ahasuerus, they sit down to drink. They're going to have a party. They're going to celebrate. Ha, look what we just did. They're celebrating and toasting their authority. They can, the snap of their fingers, wipe out an entire people group. And they're celebrating over that. So here we get another glimpse into the utter callousness and depravity of the Persian Empire. So how then do God's people respond to this threat? Again, I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, this is a legitimate threat. That there's legitimate worry over the question of whether or not in the exile God is going to save them. Because right? remember, what, what was the exile about? It was about centuries and generations of disobedience and God finally saying that is enough and removing Israel from the promised land, allowing the enemy to come in and conquer them and destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple and carry them off as slaves. First into Babylon and then as Babylon is taken over now by Persia. So the question was, did that exile signal the end of God's covenant promises to his people. That would have been a legitimate, real question at this time. Is God done with us? And maybe you're here this morning and you feel a similar way. You see your own sin. You see that your walk with the Lord has not been what it should have been. Maybe it's been years, and you wonder if you've somehow moved beyond God's grace, if your sin has somehow outrun God's promises. Maybe you're in the midst of a season of discipline, where the Lord is chastising you and bringing you through discipline to help show you your sin and help remove it from you. But in that season, you just feel like, oh, this is just evidence that the Lord is done with me. It's a sign that there's no way back into his good graces. I think Israel would have a lot of reason to feel that same way right about now. Centuries of 
unfaithfulness. Maybe God was finally going to move on. Maybe God finally is done with them. Except to do that, God would have to break his own promises. Think, what was God's promise to Abraham? He said, it's through your offspring that all the nations will be blessed. Right? It was going to be one of, somebody from, from Abraham's line that was going to be raised up to save the world. So there's, there's no starting over and forming a new line. Think when God made the covenant with Moses at Sinai. He warned them. He said, here's the law. You keep it. You're going to live in the land. There's going to be blessings. If you break it and, and do not repent, there are going to be curses. You will be removed from the land. I will discipline you. But even in the midst of those curses, God makes a promise. It says, in those generations, after they have been removed from me, after they've experienced my discipline, they turn to me. They repent. I will bring them back into the land that I swore to give you. There's still hope, even in the midst of the discipline. Think of all the prophets who came before, told the people of Israel, judgment's coming. Repent, turn from your sins, and God will forgive you. But if you don't, we're being carried off. We're going into exile. And even all of those prophets, in the midst of all of the telling of the destruction that is to come, continue to hold out the hope. When it comes, if you turn back to the Lord, He will forgive you, and He will bring you back into the land. Think about where we're at just in the history of God's people. He's already begun keeping those promises and bringing the Israelites back into Jerusalem. We see this with Ezra and Nehemiah who both came before Esther. So, so God has already been at work bringing his people back. Even in the book of Esther, we've seen all of the signs Unfolding that God is still at work. I think here in Esther, a Jew has been made queen. Mordecai has been placed in the king's council. He's been given an opportunity to save the king's life. This threat of death is coming on the eve of the great Passover celebration. These are not mere coincidences that keep happening as some sort of cruel twist of irony. No, these are all evidences of God's invisible, sovereign hand at work for the good of his people. So I love the book of Esther because the seeming silence of God, him working in the background, is the same way that we experience him in our own lives. But we still see God at work. And so again, Christian, let me remind you that if you are feeling the pangs of despair, you must look for these same evidences of grace that God has given to you. You may feel hopeless. 
But let me promise you, God is not done with you. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten about you. God is still at work in your life. And there are evidences every day of that work. If you had eyes to see them. Think, it was no accident that God brought you here today to even hear this word. Think, it's no accident that you have a host of witnesses around you this morning that could tell story after story of God's faithfulness to them. Think, every saint that God has placed in this room around you could tell you ways that God has worked in their own lives. And most importantly, God has given you his clear and abiding word that remains and reminds you that you are his. God has made these promises to you. Just think about the the pattern that we, we practice here in our services week after week after week. Not just in the preaching of the word. Yes, that's primary. But but think about the other patterns that we practice. Think of our confession of sin and assurance of pardon. Think we do that each week to be an intentional reminder to us that we, we recognize we're fallen. We recognize we haven't lived up to God's standard. But each week, receive a promise from God's word. Not from your pastor's. We're just the messengers of God's promises, the heralds of what God has already said to you. We do that week after week to remind us that God has made these promises. It's a covenant to us that is sure and abiding. Think about every week we celebrate communion, which we're going to do in just a few minutes. Come to the table. It's another declaration by God that if you put your faith in Christ, you will be forever united to Him. Forever forgiven of your sins. Forever His. So in the same way that the Israelites here in Esther needed to cling to God's promises in their moment of despair, We too cling to the same and even better promises. Because what Israel had in shadow and in mystery, we have in substance and in clarity. Think they had all the law and all the prophets, just pointing them to Christ, pointing them to what was to come. And we have our Savior crucified, bearing our guilt, our shame, and our sorrow, transferring to us his perfection, his glory, and his status. Christ was rejected that we might be welcomed. Why would God send his son into such agony only to withhold then his saving benefits from you? He sent his son to save his enemies, to save an imperfect people. 
He knew who he was saving when he sent Jesus. So why go through the torment of the cross only to say you're not good enough now? No, the proof of the Father's love and commitment to you is firmly fixed in the love shown on the cross. For there we continue to be reminded that all things indeed do work together for good for those who love him. What good news that is for us today. Let us hold fast to that promise. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you that you have spoken clearly, abundantly, powerfully to us in your word. These promises are not for somebody else. They are for us. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us to cling to them. That you would help us to remember who you are and what you have said. That you are our God, our Father. That we have been made your children through the blood of Christ. That his sacrifice was sufficient for that work. Lord, do not let our sin, our doubts, our despair cloud out these truths. But help your promises to overcome them. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.